Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Shade with Aaron Martin, the podcast where we talk about all the shows we're addicted to, plus the reality stars we love, even when we're giving them the side eye. I am here to talk about reality TV today and throw in a dash of cults at the end. We're going to wrap up our talks on the Kobu, but before that, I really want to get into a couple of facts, opinions, gossip, uh, legal website, statistics, etc. that revolve around the shows we all love. Number one, Love After Lockup. Whoa, we have to talk about Love After Lockup. If you want to see all of my thoughts on this fantastic new reality shit show, go to realitytea.com where you can take a look at my recap. You just have to go to the sidebar on the left and look for Love After Lockup. You'll see recaps of the first two episodes. It's a brand new show on WeTV. It's on Friday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 10 p.m. Eastern. And I don't know, you guys, I am just, I'm, I'm two feet in with this one. It is my new 90 Day Fiance. And no wonder, it's the same producers. And you can see their hands their golden hands all over it. You can see it in the way they present the couples, you know, piecemeal. We only get a glimpse of some couples. We deep dive on others. We haven't even met two of the couples yet. The producers of 90 Day Fiance do that with that franchise as well. They they really kind of hold out on you with some of the couples for a while, but I really like how they do that because it makes the show a little faster paced and exciting. You never know what's coming next. Let me just do a quick rundown of my just just overarching thoughts right now. Biggest hot mess for sure, Garrett and Jana right now. Biggest hot mess to come, Lamar and Andrea. Oh my god, that one I can har- I hardly have words for it. Well, of course I do have words. I have many words. But it is just so disgusting to me that she's bringing this man into her home with three children. Biggest hot mess potentially that may never be is Scott and Lizzie because word on the street is that Lizzie may not actually even get released. I think that's going to be teased next week. Now, I don't know that for sure, and I've purposefully kept myself from finding out because I want, I don't want everything to be spoiled for me, but I'm hearing chatter about that. And the show is really alluding to it. And there's been nothing on social media where I can see pictures of them together. Current day, unlike Jonna and Garrett, you know, they're all over Instagram. You can look up Garrett's Instagram. It's so funny. He goes by hashtag hot felon. So I guess he learned how to use that iPhone after all. Uh, but Scott and Lizzie, I wonder if they were the disaster that never was. And you know what? If that does happen, if she doesn't get released and, and they just are never allowed to be together, I think he dodged a bullet because I I could see 
her for sure murdering him, poisoning him, getting his meager life insurance or pension, and riding off in her pink car never to be seen again until she drives over some mofo's foot. Again, I love the scene where she's just, again, with some handheld camera in her cell, holding her Bible, asking God, why? Why am I in here? I mean, I just got a couple of DUIs and ran over someone's foot. Every day I ask myself, why? <laughs> I, I, I cannot handle the just brazen delusion of these people. I mean, I can handle it and I love it. I eat it up. It's so funny to me. Yeah, so she's still filming those 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 segments from her prison cell, which is just everything. Love it. But we haven't seen her on the outside yet, and you guys, I don't know if we will. All right, let's rewind to Jonna and Garrett. My phone's buzzing over here. Whoops. Jonna and Garrett are claiming uh, all over social media, they're happy. If you do a little bit of digging, you will see that they actually didn't meet only online, like WeTV sort of sort of makes it seem. Um, Jana knew Garrett in high school. I have a feeling she knew of him that she didn't really know him. I mean, they had no relationship in the articles I've read. You know, they they didn't really. They certainly didn't date in high school. Who knows if they were even in the same friend circle. Jana strikes me as maybe being in the crazy girl circle or the I'm all alone circle. And Garrett was probably with the bad boys. So she probably worshipped him from afar. And then that night she was drinking too many Moscatos. She probably Googled him to find out, hey, where's that hot guy from high school? Whatever happened to him? And then bingo! She finds his mugshot, and she thinks, perfect target. I can't get a guy to be with me in real life because I'm psycho, so I will be a prison wife. And that's exactly what she does. And it turns out, you guys, she likes him in prison. He needs to go back to prison, or he needs to go into the witness protection program because this chick is fatal attraction crazy. She is going to boil his bunny if he ever gets one. And can we just sidebar here and talk about that poor little doggy? I need someone to go in there and rescue that dog. I mean, although I am seeing pictures of them all cuddling the dog now and Garrett claiming he loves the dog and at first he wasn't sure, but now the dog's part of his family with Jana. And oh my God, that poor dog in the crate while they have the gross shower sex that I can't believe we TV cameras did not pan away from. Can you imagine being that poor camera person outside of that shower door, listening to Jana in her shower cap get humped for four seconds by Garrett, who hasn't had sex in 10 years. I'm sorry, six years. Anyway, I don't know if I can ever recover from that. And I watched it twice because I just like to do these things to myself. John is crazy. She doesn't like Garrett outside of prison because she can't control him. She likes him when she has the power and he is not in that same position anymore. I mean, she got him that iPhone. She can send him the crazy ass bitmojis. I know you read that. I love that I screenshotted that. I am saving that for life. 
my friend Kat, who came over to watch Love After Lockup with me last Friday, has been sending me that bitmoji when I don't answer her texts, which <laughs> is just one of the many reasons why I love her. I plan on sending that same one to my husband every time he doesn't answer my text, which is pretty much every text I ever send him. So thanks, Jana. That, that's going to really come in useful. It also comes in useful for her that she's the one who bought the house, bought the phone, bought his outside of prison clothes, and is basically holding him hostage. I mean, this guy's on parole. He can't drink. He can't run. He can't leave the state. So he is hers, and she wants to make it known. Whether he goes ahead and buys her that ring or not, hmm, we'll see. It's going to be with her money or her dad's money. Speaking of her dad, you guys, I cannot wait to see the scene where her dad just smashes that coffee cup on the ground and just freaks out at his daughter because somebody needs to. I mean, come on, man. Team Jana's dad. Come on, Jana's dad. Do us proud. Pull an Antonio 90-day fiancé move. Start calling people penguin ass, Batman ass, bitches. I don't know what you need to do, but I'm here for it. I cannot wait to see that. I think it might be even this week that that scene's coming up. Okay, let's move on to Andrea and Lamar. Andrea's concerns start rising when she makes the nine-hour drive to go pick up Lamar after getting her crooked hair sewn in by her friend who looks like she had no business doing her hair. She is wondering, all of a sudden, quite out of the blue, after she's had this six-year relationship with Lamar behind bars, will he fit into her Mormon community? Will he want to drink alcohol? Will he <gasps> want to have caffeine? Will he be a good tipper? WTF. Andrea? I don't know, girl. I, I can't get with you. You are having some crazy thoughts that make no sense. Your thoughts should be in order. Why have I done this to myself? Why have I done this and why am I going to do this further to my children? What the fuck am I thinking bringing this man who has never been outside of prison for 18 years, not only into my home, but into my home with children in a Mormon community? in Utah. And how do I expect this to turn out? Hmm. Where's Ilana, Iana? What is her name? That fix, fix my life lady. She needs to come in here and come in with a quickness and she needs to save those children. I picture this whole group being on Dr. Phil too. And Dr. Phil just laying into him. I'm not a Dr. Phil fan, but I could, I, I would like him to yell at them. I just, I need that to happen. I need somebody to yell at her because I can't do it. You guys can't do it. We can only yell at our TVs. Here's my hope. Well, here, here's, here's my comfort. Cameras are around. It's much like when Nicole went to Morocco with that sweet little May, and everyone was petrified for that little girl. <clears throat> We're, I mean, we're all just comforted by the fact that at least a production team was surrounding her. I am comforted by the fact that a production team surrounds Andrea's children as well, because we cannot trust this mother with her own children making these terrible decisions. Shout out to the house slippers Andrea wore on the side of the freeway when she was picking up her man from the prison bus. And also shout out to that recurring promo shot that WeTV kept running over and over again of her running to Lamar with his trash bag 
of possessions. That says everything we need to know about this show, doesn't it? It's like you run into your man with a trash bag. Happily ever after, when she said, this is every girl's fantasy. This is every girl's dream. I was like, every girl that you know from where? I haven't seen that Disney movie. Mm -mm. Nope. Run into a man with a trash bag on the side of a freeway and house slippers? Sounds like a hit. I think we should do it. This is why this TV is gold, 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 because you just can't write this. I mean, in whose imagination could you come up with this? Hollywood, you need to stand up and take notice of these great new reality shows out there because they are just writing themselves. All right, so we've covered three. Who is left? Oh, Scott and, not Scott, James and Allah. Here's where the dirt is really getting stirred up. So... Oh, you pink shade Facebook members. I love you, ladies, and a couple of awesome gents on there. You are amazing. We have some deep divers who need to be given prizes, and I am going to be thinking of prizes to send out to our best detectives in the Facebook group. And if you haven't joined Pink Shade with Aaron Martin on Facebook, go over there and send me a request today. I'll let you right in. It's so much fun. We are just... Ooh, we're just, we just get into it on all of these shows, on cult stuff, on Supernatural, on whatever's going on. You know, it's the place to, to go to talk about all of the obsessions you have <clears throat> that you can't bring up with your husband again, or he'll, he will tune you out for life. Or maybe that's just mine. So anyway, our special group of detectives is digging up some, are, are digging up some great intel on James and Allah based on court documents out there and legal things coming to the surface. And I know some other podcasts and some other sites have touched on this as well. Basically, we're all thinking, and if you don't want to hear this, if you don't want spoilers, skip the next minute or so. We're all thinking Allah is back in prison. Yup. I mean... I'm just going to be the one to say it. I know a lot of you are saying it and thinking it out there as well. She looked high as a kite in her talking head interview segments in this last episode. Ooh. And when she got back in that apartment that her parents were keeping for her for, I don't know, what was it? Six years, five years. I don't know how long she was in jail, but anyway, they were keeping it for her for years. What was that all about? She was kind of running through that place, looking through closets, saying, oh, here's my clothes, here's my shoes. But did you notice, I mean, my friend and I commented right away, like, mm, she's looking for her stash. Because she was lucid in her scenes most of the time, but in her interviews, no. No, 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 no. Her eyes were at half-mast. She was grasping for words. She could barely even comprehend what she was saying, let alone the questions being asked of her. I wonder how long those interview segments actually took to get recorded because she really looked out of it, you guys. Ooh, and I think maybe she got picked up for drugs again. So, you know, I feel for any addict, and um, I that's kind of all I'm going to say about that. I I hope that James is okay. I think he has got some history that we haven't found out yet either. According to one article in the Chicago Tribune, he has two children he hasn't even spoken about yet, and his divorce is not yet legal. 
Now, whether this is going to come out in the show later and they're just keeping it under their vest for now, I don't know. And whether we're going to see Allah's, you know, run in with the law again happen on the show either. I don't know, but I'm just, I don't know what to think about this couple. And I'm still waiting on word from WeTV to see if they are going to allow me to interview James. He is still up for it, so I'm hoping that my recaps haven't scared him off yet. I'm just calling it as I see it. We're going to move on from Love After Lockup, though, because we need to talk for just a moment about The Bachelor. I know not all of you out there are Bachelor watchers. I am just coming back to it after a long time away from this franchise, and basically it's because I am recapping it for 22words.com, and oh my god, it's like... I'm so pissed off that I'm missing Vanderpump rules basically while I'm watching it. And I have to catch up on pump rules after I'm done recapping the bachelor because Ari is the most boring dude I have ever been forced to watch for two straight hours on my TV screen. I mean, I cannot get over just how, just how he's not all there and he's just so fuddy duddy and he's talking on all these dates about how he really likes to go to bed early and he is looking forward to wearing cardigans and, you know, button-down pajamas in his future. He's just ridiculously unentertaining. And I don't need a Jack's crazy psycho cheater out there to entertain me, although <laughs> shout out to Pump Rules, Jacks, you are making it interesting, even though you really need to be tased every day of your life. I, I think Brittany should just be given a standard taser from production to put him down whenever he gets out of line, which is basically every minute. But back to The Bachelor. These girls are thirsty. They're not there for him. I mean, we all know this. This is one of the most scripted, produced reality TV shows out there. Like, comparing The Bachelor to something like 90 Day Fiance or Love After Lockup, it, they're not even in the same reality TV world. They are just completely separated. Winning The Bachelor isn't even a goal anymore. These girls are on there to stay as long as possible, to become famous, hopefully get an invitation to Bachelor in Paradise where they can be a breakout star and find love in air quotes with some other random and get more Instagram followers. I mean, that's why they're there and maybe get some spinoff of their own. The best thing that can happen is that you become the runner up. You become the last person rejected. You can cry, you can win the hearts of viewers everywhere, and you can become the bachelorette. And then you can put a bunch of dudes through the same shit. You don't actually want to win the bachelor, well, especially this season, because then you have to be with this guy and you have to pretend to love him and you have to make out with his bug-eating carcass and you have to go on that three-month press tour where you talk all about your feelings, and then you break up. I mean, we all know these people do not stay together. In Ari's case, though, it's like I, I'm not even here for the, for the fake ride. Even the fake ride is just too much to ask of me. The only fun thing is watching Crystal because I love a good villain and she is a good villain because her vocal fry and her whining and how much all of the girls hate her and how she's just being production's total puppet where she is interrupting rose ceremonies and talking smack about people behind their backs. I mean, she's doing everything they want him to do, 
or they want her to do. And so good for her. Maybe she won't have to be a personal trainer forever. Maybe she'll get her own gym like Tamara Barney, Tamara Judge, sorry, that no one goes to, P.S. That's pretty much all I have to say about that. Ari, good luck to you, dude. I hope those parents of yours like seeing you every day because I have a feeling that they're just going to be having dinner with you for the foreseeable future. Oh, also, one last thing. I wasn't done. I thought I was done, but I'm not done. The gross-out factor with him and Becca M., the 22-year-old, 40s throwback movie star-looking girl who's driving me totally, absolutely nuts with her shtick, is so high with me. The gross-out factor is so huge. I think it's because I see a teacher and a student and as a former teacher of high school kids, and I started out pretty young when I was not too far away from their age, but now in my older years looking at anyone near that age range who is making out with a 36-year-old, no, I don't like it. And this goes for all couples out there in these age ranges. I always think teacher-student, and it gives me the willies. She is loving it. Of course she's never going to marry his ass. She's ready to go to concerts and clubbing. He's ready to go home and DVR <laughs> The Bachelor. So that's never going to work out. But it's just so gross how he wants to jump her bones so badly. And she is just riding high on that. She leads with her sex appeal. And it's it's his fantasy. And of course he's going to keep keep her around forever. I mean, it's he's fulfilling a fantasy. Ari, you are gross. Hey, Jax, you're gross too. But hey, you're entertaining me. Pump rules. You guys, I am all in with that too. Man, that shit will never get old with me. I love James calling out Lala. He's just as crazy as Jax. I hope he doesn't fully go to the dark side, but I kind of love it when he does. Sheena and her delusional ass. I'm even entertained by that. The Toms, all of it. This season, slow clap to you. You are really bringing it. And I just hope the housewives can say the same. In terms of housewives dirt, Kenya Moore showed us a little bit of what we're going to see more of this season, and that is her war with production. On Real Housewives of Atlanta, we saw her starting to yell at the cameras and starting to blame it on her wanting to be a different woman for her man, her husband, who we still haven't seen hide nor hair of. This is going to play out all season long and get out there and do some digging. Go over to Tamara Tattles. If you guys don't read her blog, it's highly entertaining. Kenya Moore and Tamara have a direct line to one another and Tamara has the dirt and the intel on much of what has gone on behind the scenes on Real Housewives of Atlanta and specifically with Kenya. Apparently, production is so pissed off at Kenya this season. They're pissed off because she is a real housewife of Atlanta and she refuses to be in that wife role for the first time ever. It's the biggest news of the season and she's refusing to let it play out on camera. She has decided to throw this extra wedding this summer as this Hail Mary, but I truly believe that crazy ass psychic was right. She is not going to be back and it's not because she doesn't want to be back. It's because Bravo is going to cut ties with her. Mark my words, I feel it in my gut. I see it coming. And I think we saw the first rumblings of what is about to be an epic showdown between Kenya and producers on this week's Real Housewives of Atlanta. All right. 
until next time, we will stop there with the reality TV. There is much to come this week. I want to tell you guys again, watch Love After Lockup. You will not regret it. I'm sorry and you're welcome in advance. So we're at the end of our discussion about the Kobu, the Church of Bible Understanding, that I was born into in 1974, an organization run by Stuart Trail that is still around today out of his compound in Fort Lauderdale, where he is with just a skeleton crew, a handful of members really. But it was really a full steam ahead cult in the 70s, the 80s, even up through the late 90s. It started falling apart probably early 2000s, I would say. And um, if you haven't listened to the bonus podcast with Jim LaRue yet, James LaRue rather, a former Kobu member for 14 years through the 90s, go ahead and do that because if you have any interest in learning more about what it was really like living day to day in Kobu and living under Stewart's totalitarian regime, James really gives some great insight into that. Also, his books on the subject, The Captive Congregation and The Tangled Web, both of which are available on Amazon, are fantastic. I'm, I haven't read all of them yet, but I'm, they're on my list of reads right now. And there's nothing like hearing firsthand knowledge from someone who was boots on the ground in a cult, if you're interested in this sort of thing. I am going to be moving on to Waco next because of the documentary coming out starring Taylor Kitsch from Friday Night Lights fame. Oh yeah, ladies, you know Taylor. I know Taylor. I don't know if I'm thrilled with seeing him play David Koresh, but I'm thrilled about this new documentary or new movie, I guess, coming out. It's not really a documentary. I should quit calling it that. It's a movie adaptation of the tragedy that happened in Waco, which I have many, many thoughts on. And so we're going to be exploring David Koresh's cult next. And I would love to talk to anyone out there who is a deep diver on this subject. If you want to do an episode with me, just hit me up and we can talk about it. I'm definitely going to be watching the series. I'll be recapping it on Pink Shade. I'll be talking about it on our Facebook group, and uh, I am just going to go two feet in. But to wrap up on Kobu, let's see. I'm going to just maybe offer a few tidbits of information that haven't come to light yet. One is that Kobu is still very profitable. I might have alluded to this through the different segments that I've done so far on it. And James LaRue also alluded to this because Kobu still runs a company, a store really, called Old Good Things, old with an E, that sells very high-end antiques and, you know, columns from old buildings, steel, whatever. I mean, just all kinds of stuff for your home, things that dealers and interior designers are really looking for. I don't know if they know that this store or this franchise really, because they have several locations, is associated with a cult who uses slave labor to this day. 
but their prices are competitive because of this. And of course, Kobu, based on Stewart's his, his knowledge of the law, which is kind of startling, is tax exempt because it's considered a church, even though, yeah, we know it's a cult. Much like Scientology, any money that the Kobu brings in, they can keep. And they bring in a lot of money still. It's ridiculous. And it all goes to Stuart. Because, of course, the members of Kobu themselves can never earn anything. They're probably still getting a mere pittance each week. Back when my parents were working for the Kobu, they were getting about $10 a week. Sometimes you would get a little more if you needed clothes or you needed a little more food for your baby. But it was around $10 a week, and those guys were working 17-hour days cleaning carpets and sanding floors, and the women were working nonstop taking care of all of the children. I'm sure that those same practices are going on today. That's just really typical for any kind of cult leader to institute a desperation among the members so that they really have no means by which to get out. There's a really great great article out there. If you're one of those people who likes to go deep on subjects and the Kobu is interesting to you, it's called I'll Be Damned. And if you just look up I'll Be Damned Kobu, you will find it. It's, it's actually in a PDF excerpt from Philadelphia Magazine and it's written in the late 90s by a woman who infiltrated the Kobu and pretended that she wanted to be recruited and so it was kind of an undercover mission. It's like 15, 16, 17 pages long. And I just was riveted reading this because it's the perspective from someone who's hearing people trying to recruit her. I mean, but she knows she, she was actually Jewish. She is Jewish. And she was just kind of playing along to get the story out of them. And it's truly amazing, even though it's you know, over 18, 19 years old now, this story, it's really the most recent in-depth coverage of Stuart or the members of the Kobu, which were even dwindling then, that's out there. So take a look at it if you get a chance. Uh, her name is Sabrina, and I believe it's Sabrina. I hope I'm getting that right. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes as well. I don't have it in front of me right now, even though I have many quotes by her. It will be in the show notes, though, if you want to take a look at that. I'll also link up to the article itself. Some interesting facts that I pulled out of her undercover mission are, I had no idea Stuart was stockpiling weapons. Okay, you guys, what a transition to the Waco movie coming out and David Koresh. Uh, my parents never knew that he was stockpiling weapons. He wasn't doing it when we were in there. He was doing it later in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and apparently this stuff is still stockpiled somewhere, which scares the living shit out of me because again, Stuart is still alive. He is with his wife, Gail, who's basically a vegetable because he was driving on the wrong side of the road, crashed the car and she was injured for life. He still never admits his wrongdoing in this. And he says he's divorced in the eyes of God so he can be with other women because he's a dirt bag. Here's some information on the stockpiling of weapons though. It says, so this was written in the 90s, so a former Kobu member tells this reporter who went undercover that 10 years ago, so this would be the 80s, under Trail's orders, they stockpiled barrels of gunpowder in Philadelphia area warehouses. That's scary stuff, says former member Mike Montoya. 
If it's still there, Stuart could very easily blow up a couple of neighborhoods to kingdom come. Kobu is a very radical group, says Rick Ross, an Arizona-based cult expert. Only the most extreme groups are as separatist as Kobu. We can't comprehend how totalistic an environment can be. They're molded by their leader in such a way that they're not really touched by reality. And when the leader tells them the outside world is evil and the only purity is within their group, they seem willing to accept that because they have no second opinion. Most ex-members can't imagine Stuart Trail ordering Kobu members to commit suicide or violent acts, but only because they see the cult's present incarnation as his personal goldmine. Why would he kill off his labor force? asks Beth Davies, who was a member for 12 years. They're making him very rich man, a very rich man. But few doubt that should he want to, motivated by paranoia or panic, or let's just say it, you guys, old age and going out himself, Trail would have the power to turn the Kobu into a national tragedy. Oh, man. Reading this sent shivers down my spine because... Not a lot of people out there know that Stuart Trail exists. Those of you listening have probably heard about him for the first time, unless you've had direct contact with the Kobu, knowing people that were in it or were possibly in it yourselves and found your way to this podcast. It amazes me how underground such prominent organizations can be sometimes. And Stuart seems to have intentionally made it this way. I mean, he never rose to the national stage of fame in the media. He never was a figure that whose name was tossed around. I mean, he, he obviously never became a Charles Manson by ordering anyone to commit an actual crime. I should actually retract that statement because he did order Foreman to beat his son with a board, which landed his son, his teenage son at the time, in a children's hospital, and the four men were arrested and charged with, I'm not sure with what, but they were each given five years of probation or something ridiculously light for child abuse. It was all under Stewart's orders, so who knows really what else he's ordered people to do. He also put his wife in the in a damn coma, basically, for life, so I need to retract all of that. He has done some super shitty things, not to mention just brainwashing thousands and thousands of people into handing over their money to him and denying themselves and living in rat-infested, roach-infested, squalor-like conditions. You know, when I was reading this article about the conditions of the lofts, which were mostly around Bleecker Street in the Bowery District, down by the Diamond District in Manhattan, that I lived in for a few years of my childhood. And again, I don't remember the specifics. I just remember images and pretty good things from my perspective. My parents have described the rat problem. I think my father said there was a rat up by my face when I was a baby one time trying to lick milk off of my face, which I can't really even go there in my mind. Um, but yeah, they, they, they saw it, they lived it. So they remember that. But I was remembering a very bizarre story. It's, it's like I'm having PTSD. You guys, these things are coming back to me out of nowhere. Ah, this story involves an uh, someone who worked in the Diamond District who owned a jewelry store, an older Jewish gentleman who 
frequently saw these Kobu members wandering around in their hippie skirts and their long hair, and the guys were all hippies, and they, you know they were just considered the Jesus freaks of that those square blocks that we all lived on. And he took a liking to me as a baby. And he actually approached my mom one day and asked if he could buy me. And she was shocked, of course, and as politely as possible, told him that no, her baby wasn't for sale. And he tried to convince her several other times that, you know, she really should consider selling me to him because he could give me a good life. And she and my father were really young, and they could have plenty of more children. Now, ironically, I turned out to be an only child because they, they couldn't and didn't have more children. So I was the only child they'd ever have, <laughs> notwithstanding the fact that absolutely never in a million years would my parents sell me to someone. So this story, besides being just personally shocking in our own family unit, um, it, it really speaks to how people saw these cult members. They saw them as impressionable enough to ask them to buy their babies, you know? And my mom and my dad are not stupid people, and I wouldn't say that any of the people we knew after we all left the, the organization are stupid people either. It's often a misnomer that it's just really really dumb people who are entering and staying in these cults. I think it takes a, a major amount of strength to leave one, and I'm proud that my parents found that strength to do so before we spent too many years as a family in it. I think it it shows just how how gullible some people can be if they're searching for something, and that man approaching my parents thinking that he was going to give me a better life was probably who knows what kind of fucking weirdo he was, but he was preying on them just as much as Stuart was. I look at it in the same way. You know, it's an older person looking at young people who are a little bit lost. They don't have their footing yet, and they're easily preyed upon. I thank God that my family got out before anything bad happened. Side note, that same man ended up giving my mom a shit ton of gorgeous designer clothes for me when I was a toddler, because I guess he was still a little bit obsessed about owning me. Again, the, the gross out factor, I can't even get out of my mind with this guy. But hey, she took the clothes because they were only making $10 a week in the Kopu. So I was the best dressed cult kid out there. It probably gave me my love for fashion ever since then. Anyway, crazy personal story. There you go. If that guy's still out there, fuck off. I'm going to move on. So I wanted to touch on one more thing before we get off of the Kobu, and that is what Stuart taught that these three layers of sin were, because this is something specific in the teachings that I haven't mentioned yet. I mentioned his weird color coding system that he used with everyone, him calling the young ones lambs. He also in later years built houses just for young people. And in my conversation with James LaRue, you probably heard us talking about how he really started bringing young women into his own home with his newer wife, Gail, because as his newer wife, Gail, grew older, he still wanted those young girls. And so he started really building a harem around him. Again, a lot like David Koresh. 
and being very inappropriate with him. In this article, I'll be damned, this undercover operation, there is one ex-Kobu member who actually was a Gale's helper, as they were called, these women who lived in the house with them, and they witnessed Stuart acting very inappropriately in front of them, like grabbing Gail's crotch and saying, get ready for me later, and then looking at the girls suggestively. He also, three, three of them have admitted that they were groped. None have ever come forward and pressed legal charges, but many surmise that he was having sex with more than one of them. Total cult leader move. I mean, we've all seen this over and over again with these total dirtbags. So it's no surprise that Stuart went down the same path as they all do because he is a stereotype. He is not singular in his actions. He does it the same way all of these leaders do. Uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on, though, and I, I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier before I got off on the rant of the girls, is the this three layers of sin that this journalist Sabrina unearthed in her investigation that these Kobu members kept drilling into her and it was all about denying yourself and taking up your cross and following God and basically living without anything. Of course, Stuart never did that himself. He only asked his members to, his followers to, his lambs. But the the third layer of sin that they talked to her about was very interesting. It was about having no basically not having any thoughts of your own. Stewart actually named this as a sin, having independent thought. Now, that is just critical in controlling people because they actually started feeling not that they were just wrong for thinking other uh, thinking about other ideas or questioning Stuart or even reading other books like James LaRue talked about in his interview with me. He read books and he started realizing that he was indeed in a cult. Stuart didn't just say these are distractions or these will lead you down the wrong path. He actually said this is the third biggest sin there is to have independent thought. Now to people who are trying not to sin, to these to these followers of God, as they thought of themselves in their mind, who are trying to live these righteous lives, to be told that it is one of the three biggest sins to have independent thought, well, that's just genius on Stewart's part. And that is what they were trying to convince this investigator of when she was pretending to be recruited. And she even pointed out how how what a perfect storm it was that Stuart was setting up for these people to just kind of berate themselves as sinners when they had thoughts. Oh, I just can't say again how happy I am that my family got out, that we were given a chance at a normal life when I was very young, even though I, I always allude to the fact that I had fun in there. I did with the kids, but of course I wouldn't have wanted to grow up in that situation. So I'm very grateful to my parents for having the strength of character and a family who supported them, my mom's parents. And I want to, I guess I would just want to say that if anyone listening finds themselves in this situation, I would do what James talked about in his interview, which is reach out to ex-members. That's what Leah Remini is doing in her work. Ex-members are the people who are going to tell you the truth about what you're currently in, and they are the biggest threat to any cult because they know what they're talking about. They're not the psychologists. They're not the armchair psychologists even. 
who can go on and on for days about what cults are and if you're in a cult and here are some signs and warnings. No, if they were in it and they got out, listen to them. So for all of you who have stayed with me through this whole Kobu ride, thank you. I would love for you guys to reach out and tell me what kind of cults you want me to cover next. Like I said, I am going to delve into the Waco movie coming out and also do more research on David Koresh and not only what went down at the end, but what, what led up to that point. Because I know some things, and like I said, I have a lot of feelings about what happened with the government versus these people, a lot of them who were truly innocent victims. But I want, I want to know more about the inner workings of his cult. And so we're going to go there next. But tell me what you guys would like to explore after that. Because, wow, the list is endless. I'd really like to touch on cults that aren't in the mainstream right now. So I'm, I'm going to stay away from Scientology because I can't hold a candle to what's being done out there. And it's it's so populated with opinion and all kinds of deep dives everywhere. I will maybe go into the, the Duggar stuff because that is a crossover to reality TV and a couple of you have pointed that out and sent me some great articles on Facebook. So maybe we'll go there. That I think it's called Quiverful or something like that. Um, I don't know. I'd be into that. Let me know. Let me know what you're interested in. Follow me at Erin Leah Martin on Twitter and Instagram and join us in the Pink Shade with Erin Martin Facebook group. We are having so much fun over there. I'd love to see you and I'd love to chat with you about all of this. Until next time, I will see you in reality. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.